guys are still so far away. <laughs> you guys should sit up so the high schoolers get in the back. It's like it's hard for us up there to like kind of engage with you when you guys are like feels like like the Red Sea is parted or something. Like the whole Egyptians can just go through us. Uh, no, it's good to be back uh, in the Book of Judges. Uh, I do wanted to give a shout out to Chris Wong who filled in for us last week. Um, I was able to hear his message today, and it was encouraging and convicting. It's always good to have, uh, you know, former or, you know, SFBC people that's gone to seminary and see how the Lord is growing them and developing them to be future pastors and leaders of churches. If you have your Bibles, please open it to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6 is going to be the text for us this evening. If you remember this old movie called Back to the Future, you guys, have you guys watched that movie? No? Some, there's like a few hands. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. It's a, basically a movie about going back in time with this, this really weird-looking car. And there's this one scene that's kind of in the beginning of the film where this mad scientist, this doctor, is trying to explain to, uh, I guess, this little companion uh, how this little time-traveling machine works. And if you remember that scene, at, I'm guessing when it, when it came out in, like, what, the 70s, 80s or something, it was, like, really cool. But if you look at it now, if you watch it, it's kind of absurd. Because if you remember that scene, the doctor just points to the back of the car and said, this machine is the reason why we, go, we could time travel. This is the flux capacitor, right? That's what it's called. And all it is, if you look at it now, is just a little box with three lights. All, that's all it is. It's just three lights. And when you look at it, it seems funny. But then at the time, again, it, in the context of the movie, that's the thing that, 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 that kind of moves the story forward. They're able to go back in time they, they're, they, as they're deciding what to do in the present, and they go forward in the future later on in the movies. And the entire movie franchise hinges on this little box with three lights on it. When we think about God's word, we understand that God's word is... Uh, the hinge that dictates our entire life. It, it, it impacts the way that we look in the past. It affects the way that we live in the present, and it makes us look forward to what God has in store for us in the future. The life of the Christian hinges on God's words. All that you are as a Christian must be drawn from the deep wells of Scripture. And if, if you're attempting to live a life without being faithful to his revealed word, problems will come. Life that was once filled with sweet happiness will be turned to bitter sadness. Life which was once filled with peace and prosperity will be, will be turned to poverty. Life that was once filled with blessing will be turned to cursing. How you live your life in relative to God's word will either guard you or cause you to fall into sin. And when you fall into sin, God will afflict you. He will discipline you because he loves you. Now, oftentimes, Christians get in trouble because we neglect the word of God. If a person neglects God's word long enough, they'll fall into sin and will keep running away from the Lord. Such it is in this passage here in the book of Judges. If you look at verse 1 and 2, you'll notice... Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, 
The Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. The power of Midian prevailed against Israel because of Midian, because of Midian the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. This first two verses began to seem familiar to all of us because it's, it's really like a transition between one episode to the next. But again, if you look at the totality of the book of Judges, it's, it seems like history is repeating itself. But it's not. Mark Twain said it this way, that when we, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And I think when you read the book of Judges, that's what it is. It seems like these events are similar in that there's a group of Israelites that failed to obey the Lord, and their hearts are turned away, and then they get afflicted for it. And this beginning here starts again the cycle that we talk about, or this tailspin of the same pattern of sin the Israelites did it again in another again, like falling into sin. Israel's at this point, because of their sin, they were hiding in the mountains. This is like a total drastic change from the book of Joshua when they were able to inhabit this entire land. Even in the beginning of Judges, we see that they had all of this property, this all this land that God has promised them. Now they're all hiding inside mountains, inside caves. They hid there because of their own sin. They, their sin has brought them to the, to, the, to the caves in the mountains. Their oppression caused them a tremendous amount of pain. Look at verse 3. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them. So they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. Every time the Israelites will have any sorts of uh, growth in terms of their plants or any type of animals, these, these Midianites would just go in and just take it from them. When I was in high school, college, and when I was in seminary, I was working at different schools, and there's always this trend when you're working with kids, is that they're all evil. The kids are evil. And there's always this... There's one kid that's just so diligent and working on his playing with his toys and you're just, just playing by himself. Like I remember in multiple scenarios where this this one little good kid just playing by himself, building all his Lego and stuff, and there's one other kid comes up and just smacks it. Just destroys it in front of the kid and the kid cries and then you know we tell the kid you can't do that and we have to bench him or whatever. It's like, you know, like this is what we call a bully. I was that kid too, so you know, I I'm not justifying, I'm just saying that there are wicked people in the world. They start at a very young age. But this is what's going on with the Israelites. Every time there was something was, every time they built something, every time there was some sort of uh, uh, success in their crops, these Midianites would just come and just take everything from them. All the Israelites had uh, whatever momentary success they had would be immediately taken away and destroyed by the Midianites. The Midianites would raid them over and over again, and they did this for seven years. There was little. There was very little for the Israelites to live off of. And again, this happened to them because of their, because of their sin. Verse 10 tells us that their hearts were turned away from the Lord, that they feared other gods. Look at verse 5. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come in like locusts for number. Both they and their camels were innumerable, and they came to the land to devastate it. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. 
Notice how the Midianites treated them. They were like locusts. In the Bible, when they use the term locusts, it's not like the Midianites were actually giant bugs, but that they, they worked like a swarm. They, they went in and they took everything. These people acted as one unit. They acted as a swarm and they ravished and took everything from the Israelites. And all of this is because the Israelites forgot the word of God. But yet, if you notice at the very end of verse 6, they were humbled and they realized they had to go and cry out to Yahweh. But it, it took them seven years for them to cry out. Seven years of them assuming on their own strength. Seven years of them looking at other gods for deliverance. Seven years of pain because of their own forgetfulness. I'm not sure how many of you have ever spoken to someone or have a friend or family member that fell away from the faith. But you'll notice that what often happens in this conversation is like they start having the struggle of their own, with their own existence. They struggle with sin, and it causes them to doubt whether or not the whole Christianity thing is worth it. Oftentimes, they'll feel empty, like God doesn't satisfy them anymore. And you'll notice that there's this trend that like goes forward. It's like a downward trend where they start questioning God in every little way. They start forgetting all the things that God has provided in the past, and they dwell on their uh, on their discontentment and things that doesn't satisfy them in this life. And, t- and as that progresses, eventually they'll deny the faith altogether. Now, before you think you, to, the, about, to yourself about these Israelites, it took seven years to repent. You have to understand that this is like us. How often have you lived life in misery until you see yourself, until you, until you fall on your knees and turn to God? If you were struggling with anxiousness in life, it's easy for us to just go to our friends about it. It's easy to go to our small group leaders. You can even go to our pastors about it. But how quick are we to run to God with our problems? We'll oftentimes go to everyone else around us except for the one that can actually care for us. If you're struggling with contentment, how easy it is for just finding other people and, you know, misery comes in companies. It's like everyone just talk, talking about their discontentment instead of actually crying out to God and, and asking him to give you grace to be content. The point is this, is that we need to go to God with our problems. And like the Israelites, sometimes we don't because we have, we have forgotten the word of God. This portion, this chapter shows us the importance of God's word in the life of a believer. If you want to grow and to be faithful, if you want to be a faithful believer, the person that cherishes, cherishes, trusts, and live out God's word, you need to know God's word. You have to keep studying it. If you're in a spiritual rut, if you're not growing spiritually, if you're always falling into the same type of sins, if you're having some sort of spiritual apathy, the only solution to all of these problems is to go to God's word. You must cherish the word of God. That's what we're going to look at. Four reminders of God's word that will make us cherish God's word. And there's this strange thing that happens when we study God's word. It's like the more we study God's word, the more we'll cherish God's word. And the more we cherish God's word, the more we want to study God's word. It's this, almost like that snowball effect. But the not in terms of sin, but the snowball effect in terms of desire for Jesus Christ. The more you study God's word, the more you cherish God's word, the more you'll go back and diligently look to God's word. So four reminders of God's word that will make us cherish the word of God. The first one is that God's word reminds us of our salvation. God's word reminds us 
of our salvation. Look at verse 7. Now it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on account of Midian. The most basic truth that you need to remember about the Bible is that it teaches us, it reminds us of our salvation. In verse 7, Israelites were tired of their persecution and affliction, so they decided to cry out to God after seven years. Now, unfortunately, if you look carefully at the end of verse 6 and verse 7, you'll notice something, that they're both crying out, but there's no evidence of repentance. They're crying out to God because they're in pain, but they're not actually repentant. It seems like they are complaining more than actual turning to God. Israel as a nation is really good at crying, but they are terrible at repenting. Their lack of repentance leads God to send them a prophet. Look at verse 8. Then the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel and said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, It was I who brought you from Egypt and brought you out from the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all oppression and dispossessed them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. This unnamed prophet just was sent by God to tell them this message. And you notice that in in the both verses, it says that God saved them. God delivered them. God is one who heard their cries in both scenarios, back in Egypt and now. God has heard their cry, and he's giving them a deliverance. God was the one who demonstrated his power through the plagues in Egypt. God was one who, who parted the Red Sea and, and then closed it to, to preserve the Israelites from the Egyptian army. God was the one that protected them in the wilderness. Yet God's protection, deliverance in the past, and even preserving them in the mountains at this point, they fail to forget who God is. God was the one who saved them first, and, it was, and God was the last person that they went to. Now, if you think of this passage here, they're crying out to God. How is this helpful? Right? If you think, like, oh, I am starving, I am in pain, and I need help, God, and he sends a prophet, how is that helpful? You know, why not send, like, another judge or, or, or some, like, soldier or army or food? Why send this prophet to come and help no, you have to understand that the prophet is actually the most important person and the most important thing that they need. The message that he declares to them is the most important thing that they need. It reminds them of their salvation. A person can cry out to God, but they are not repentant. And the Israelites needed to remember what they have lost before they will embrace what God will give them in the future. If you have ever done any sort of biblical counseling or caring for people, um, or if you're cared for, inevitably, someone is going to share the gospel with you. If you come up to me and say you're struggling with anger, at some point, I'm going to share the gospel with you. If you're telling me about how, uh, oh, I, how, much you're, how much you don't like your job, you're grumbling and complaining, eventually I'll share the gospel with you. The gospel is the remedy to everything. Everything hinges on the gospel. And, it, and I think if people understood that, then counseling would be a lot easier. But because like, our own sinfulness, our own hardness of heart, we constantly need to like, like chip away our own sin and remember the gospel. If, if there's any type of sin, 
And eventually, we have to point them back to the gospel. Even if we use, like, the complaining example, we point them to Philippians 2. We point them to, like, okay, this is why we don't complain, not just because we want to be a light to the world, because Jesus didn't complain. He humbled himself and died on the cross for you and I. He did it without grumbling or complaining. If you think about contentment or trusting in the Lord, we, we look to the gospel again. We look to how Jesus entrusted himself to the Lord. And whatever type of situation you're in, whatever sin you're struggling, you can always go back to the gospel. And I think that's what's going on here. The gospel is a, is a fulcrum that moves every part of your life. How the gospel is in your life will have a direct impact on how you live your life. If you fail to recall the gospel, if you fail to remember your salvation, if the gospel is not precious to you, if you neglect the gospel in any moments of your life, you will fall into sin. Sin will creep in and it will wreck your life. Much like the Israelites need to remember their salvation so that they can be faithful to the Lord. So it is for us that we need to cherish the gospel daily. We need to remember our salvation if we want to be faithful to the Lord. It is our own forgetfulness that leads us to discontentment. It is our own forgetfulness that leads us to the life of laziness. It is our own forgetfulness that, lead, that, uh, that forces us to, be, to, to covet what other people have. It is our own forgetfulness that makes us fall into sexual sin. It is our own forgetfulness that turns our heart away from the Lord. We need to remember our salvation just like the Israelites and their salvation to fuel us to live a life of obedience to God. This unnamed prophet does like this mic drop. He just tells them of their salvation, and he disappears. You never see him ever again. Ever again. God was not going to save them for the sake of luxury or comfort. No, God saved them because of his covenant love that he's made for them. He wanted them to represent him and to give God all the glory. God wanted to save them so that they can be his people. And whenever you read God's word, it will, it will always bring you and remind you of salvation. Whether the Old Testament or the New, always point you to the cross. The Christian life hinges on God's word. At the center of it is salvation. It's him saving all of us. And by cherishing our salvation, you'll cherish the word of God more. Again, this is the type of symbiotic relationship that we have God's word. The more we study it, the more it feeds us, and the more we want to go back to it. Not only, does reminding, not only does God's word remind us of our salvation so that we can cherish God's word more, but the second reminder that God's word has a, that makes us cherish God's word more is that the scripture reminds us of our mission. Scripture reminds us of our mission, verse 11 to 24. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, as as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. You'll notice that the angel of the Lord appears. Again, this is the third time he appears. He'll appear several more times in this book. But he's he's seen as just sitting under this oak tree. And Gideon is seen beating wheat in a winepress. And it's strange if you don't understand what's going on. Usually when a person wants to beat the wheat out of something, they do it outdoors. The reason why they do it outdoors is because they would, if you just imagine like the shell of it, they have to break it and then they would just toss it in the air and the wind would just carry the shell off and they could keep the center of what's inside the shell. 
but he's doing it inside. He's doing it inside a building. The equivalent of us in our time would be like if, if I had like a barbecue right here, right now in this room, and started cooking in front of you. Like those outdoor barbecues, like the one that have all the smoke coming out. Like it works, but it's not meant to be used indoors. And that's what's going on here. Gideon is doing something that's meant to be outdoor activity, but he's doing it inside. And the reason why he's doing this is because he's scared. He didn't want to be raided by the Midianites. Verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Now we know that there's a sense of humor here because he's, he's inside this wine press. He's like a coward, but yet the Lord calls him as a valiant warrior. Now again, before we laugh and look at Gideon, oh, what a little coward, what a wimp. Understand that the angel of the Lord is looking at him and he's seeing the potential. He's seeing his potential. He's seeing what he will become one day. And in the book of Judges, later on we'll see he does become a valiant warrior. He looks at him. He sees what he will be. And that should be a reminder for all of us. The way that the Lord looks at us now, he doesn't see who we are in our own sinfulness. He doesn't see our own shortcomings now. He looks at us. He sees us as, as joint heirs, not just the Bible said, but you know, people that are co-heirs with him in heaven one day. He sees us as his sons and daughters. He looks at us and he sees our potential, the future, the, in the future where we're in our glorified bodies without any sin. Because of what he's done on the cross for us, God looks at us and sees what we will become one day. And that should cause us, it should really convict all of us in the way that we even look at one another. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we're going from one glory to another. So every time when you're in the church, when you look at some other believer in the church, you understand that even though they have a lot of flaws, even though they might not be perfect and sin against you, all the good things that they have is because of God's working through them. And those things remind you and shows you the little glimmers of Christ. We should look at each other in the same way, not by their own faults in the moments, but what they will be one day, because that's how the Lord looks at all of us. So he calls this individual, Gideon, a valiant warrior. Now, bravery is not easy, especially during time of war. In World War II, there was a man by the name of Deadman Doss. He was a fearless medic in, in this one particular battle in 1945 in this Japanese place, um, he saved 75 American soldiers. And what made him super unique isn't like, oh, he just did his job as a medic. But he had all his gear, and he did not, and of all the gears and all stuff he packed, the one thing he did not pack was a weapon. And if you imagine this, this medic, he's now saving people, and at any point an enemy soldier can just pop up and kill him, and he's not, he, he, had, he, he would have no way to defend himself. During this entire war, he was able to go and rescue 75 people. And, he, and even at one point, they offered him a stretcher, and he said, no, I'm okay, offered to the soldiers. And because of his bravery, because of all his sacrifice, he was able to, re to receive the Medal of Honor, which is the highest award you can get as a soldier. In history, there are many brave individuals, but Gideon is not one of them. Gideon is not brave at this moment, but the angel of the Lord is looking at his potential. Verse 13, then Gideon said to him, oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Where, and where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. 
Gideon speaks to the angel of the Lord, he does not know that this is actually God. He begins to just question, why is all this happening? What, what happened to all those miracles, all the things that we've heard of in the past? But he's actually asking a question that he already knows the answer to. God is not present because of their, all, because of their own sinfulness. The people here forgot what God has said, that if you turn from me, I will curse you. In fact, God is actually fulfilling his word, even though he has no, even though he has no recollection of it. People who forget God's salvation will only take time before they forget the rest of God's word. Verse 14, the Lord looked at him and said, go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand, <laughs> excuse me, from the hand of Midian, have I not sent you? God assures Gideon in verse 14. He tells him that, have I not sent you? This is a clear commission from our God to Gideon. Verse 15, he said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's household. Gideon's responded by saying how He's just, he has the smallest tribe. He's the, the weakest among his entire family. Gideon was focusing on well, his own strength and forget that God is always the one that will use the weak to humble the strong. You'll see this throughout his life, that God will always use small amount of people to do a great amount of things. Verse 16, but the Lord said to him, surely I will be with you and you shall defeat Midian as one man. God assures him again that I will be with you. What a great promise from God that he will be with Gideon during this entire fight. Again, you would think that if someone has heard this audible voice from God, seeing the angel of the Lord, that he will be absolutely built up in confidence, that he will be like, oh, yeah, I'll fight right now. You would think that he will become this fearless leader. Yet God has to remind Gideon of the mission that he has, and he assures him of his, of his uh, protection. Again, before you scoff and laugh and look down on Gideon for still not trusting, in, in, not, still not trusting God fully and being brave, remember that Christ has said the same thing to you and I. If you think about the Great Commission, one of the last quotes uh, he, that Jesus said is that he will be with us always until the end of the age. Yet how easy it is for us to be scared in our evangelism. How easy it is for us to be scared to go and tell people about Jesus because we, f- we fear people's opinions more than what God has promised us. The scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. It tells us that Christ dwells in us. It tells us that God is omnipresent, that he's everywhere, that he's watching over us. But yet when the moment counts, when it's time for us to go share the gospel, how easy it is for us to just cower away. We fail because we are scared. We don't trust the Lord. In fact, it makes us seem like we're actually more like Gideon than we would like to admit. We're more cowardly than we would like to admit. We don't, we, uh, we doubt God more than we would like to admit. We don't trust God's word more than we would like to admit. Verse 17, so Gideon said to him, If now I found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come back to you and bring out my offering and lay it before you. And he said, I will remain here until you return. Gideon wants to test 
God. He wants to trust God. So he, so he wants to just, he does this thing where he gets all this offering. He, he worships him. He brings all of the stuff that he has. Verse 19. Then Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. He put the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot and brought them out to him under the oak and presented, and presented them. Gideon's offering what little he has left. Remember, this is all that he has. He's like, okay, if you are going to say, if you're really God, then if, you, if you, what you're saying is true, then I might as well just go all out, go all in. Because he knows that he's already in a losing battle. And he needs to, he, so he just gives him everything that he has left, all the little scraps, all the little animals that he has left, all the things that the Midianites somehow failed to capture. Verse 20, the angel of the Lord said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on a rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. And the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in, the, in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. Then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. The sacrifice was consumed. And, the, and, and this comes up again later when we, when we go to the story of Samson. There's something, it's, it's similar, again, it's similar in that it's, there's this offering that's made to the angel of the Lord. And it's, it's consumed. And in both cases, it involves angel of the Lord offering and, and both times that God reveals himself. Verse 22, when Gideon saw that he was an angel of the Lord, he said, Alas, alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. The Lord said to him, Peace, be, uh, peace to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and named it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it is still an Ophrah of the Abizrites. Gideon realized what has happened, he, and, he, and God assures him that he will not die, that, he, that they, they just calm down, you're not going to die. And it's, I always find that to be kind of interesting because he told them, like, you're going to go and you're going to deliver these people, and then they get scared thinking that God's going to kill them. Like, God told you you're going to do this. You're not going to die. Um, again, we see this in, uh, in later on with Samson as well. Samson's parents see, like, God promised him that you're going to have the son that's going to deliver you, and the, the angel Lord does exactly the same thing, and then the husband thinks, oh, we're dead. And then the wife's like, and the wife makes this comment, like, if God wanted to kill us, why would he give us this message? It's like, okay, you're right, you're right. Gideon needed assurance from God. And after God, and after this, he made this memorial, he devoted it to the Lord, this, this way for him to remember what God has done. Now, we know in our life that we have something greater than the miracles. We have the living word of God. As great as these miracles are, we have God's word. If we do have God's word, which is greater than the miracles that the saints of old have seen, how much greater is our weakness when we have God's word and still doubt God's word? We have something so much better than the miracles, we should be more assured. We should be more confident in God's word, yet we struggle. And I think part of the reason why we forget God's mission is because we, can't, we, we act like the world. We dwell on the things of the world. What Gideon needed is what we need, and that is to trust God's word more. God gives us his word, and we must submit to them and trust the mission that God has given us. God is with us, and we need to, be, and we need to fulfill our mission that's revealed in Scripture. Throughout the Scripture, it does, the Scripture tells us what we need to be. It tells us the sins that we need to put away, the, the life that we need to live so that we can be a good testimony to the, living, to the world. 
right? This is Matthew 5, being a light to the world, being a salt to the world. In order to do that, we need to live our lives according to Scripture. And the more we do that in our lives, the more we fulfill our mission. Understand that you are called to be a Christian first. You're not a, you're not a student first. You're not an employee first. You're primarily a Christian and the Bible teaches us how to live a godly life so that we can fulfill this mission. We want people to know Jesus. We want people to go to heaven. And you need to look at your own life and remember that this is our job. Our job isn't to just have fun, and though that's fine, our job is not to just enjoy the things of this world. Our job here, the reason why God has left us here, is to make disciples of all nations. We need to invest in eternal things. The way that you live your life must always be pointed back to this mission, that we need to go and make disciples of all nations. If there's any hindrance of those things, you need to decide between you and the Lord whether or not this is something that you need to let go of. I know there's a lot of things in our, in our world, we talk about Christian liberties and things that we want to do, but there are a lot of things that, that actually hinders us, becomes a stumbling block for other people to want to know Jesus. And God's word reminds us that we were saved, therefore we need to be a representative of him. And when we remember what we were saved from, it makes us cherish his word even more. Another reminder that will help us cherish God's word, aside from reminding of our salvation and our mission, is that God's word reminds us of his protection God's word reminds us of his protection. And when we see God's word, we see his protection. It makes us cherish his word more. Look at verse 25 to verse 27. Now on the same night, the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and a second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the ashrod that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold in an orderly manner. And take a second bull and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah, which you shall cut down. And Gideon took ten men, ten men of his servants, and did as the Lord had spoken to him. And because it, he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it by day, he did it by night. Gideon gives, God gives Gideon this particular task to destroy the Baal altars and the Asherah, and, and God does not have any equal. So he, God commands Gideon to do this, to destroy these idols. And God is the only God and doesn't have any equal. And he, it's interesting, if you look at the commands, he's really particular, right? He tells them exactly what you need to do. You need to bring this animal up, you need to pull it down, you need to take one of the ashes and burn it as an, off, as an offering to him. Our God is a really precise God. He, he, he doesn't compromise, he doesn't move. When the Bible tells you do not do not lie. There's no room for that. You just don't lie. But the Bible also tells that if there's, you know, I know oftentimes people hear like, oh, but what if you're in Nazi Germany and, you know, all that, like if you're hiding a Jews or you lie to the Nazis, like, look, you're not in that situation. Don't worry. Okay. You're, that's not you. You need to just worry about where you are in your own life. And even if you were in that situation, just playing along, the Bible tells us that there's always a means to escape, that God has, will never put you in a situation where you have to compromise and fall into sin. Our God is a very precise God, and that's what's going on. He tells them exactly what he needs to do. And oftentimes, I find that when you actually do what God's word tells you according to his word and do it God's way, God will protect you. He will protect you. He'll watch over you. For some, it may be in your own jobs. You're, you, you have this opportunity to maybe change the numbers a bit. You have this, you're tempted to maybe like lie on a report. 
Maybe he'll give you a raise if you do so. But look, it doesn't matter if you do all of these things and not trust in the Lord's protection. God is the one that's going to provide for you. God is the one that's going to care for you. Just faithfully live out his word. Our God is a particular God. He gives us particular commandments, and we must obey it exactly. Gideon obeys, and he goes that night, and this is, again, it's in the passage, verse 27 tells us, it's not because he's, like, tactful. Like, he's not like, oh, I'm going to be an espionage, and, like, at nighttime is, like, the best. He, he's just scared. That's why he did it. He, he's grabbed 10 guys to go with him at night to do all of this. Um, but yet, it's interesting, though. He, he's scared, but he still does it. He went out by night, and you know, you notice this little detail. He was like seven-year-old ram. Why is it seven? Well, that's because that's how long they've been oppressed. That's how long they've been captured. So then he, God uses this, this seven-year-old ram to like show them, like, okay, it's over now. He puts up his altar instead, and he used this false god as fireworks to make an offering to God. Again, even though he was a coward, he is at least a faithful coward. He may be a wimp, but he was faithful. He obeyed God even if it was out of fear in his situation. And I think that's actually a good thing. It's, it's, it's actually totally fine to be, to be afraid as long as you're just obedient. Gideon was scared to do it in the daytime, so he went at night. Not only did it at night, but he, he, he did exactly the way that the Lord told him. This is faithful obedience, even though it was not easy for him to do so. Sometimes I think when we think about those like hardcore evangelist people that we know of, you know, like the ones that are always out every week sharing the gospel, people think, oh, they're so brave. It, it must just come so naturally for them. And, you know, my wife and I went to this G3 conference a few months ago. And, you know, he has who Todd Friel is? Todd Friel. So he's like, he's an evangelist. And every, if you listen to his podcast or his show, every Wednesday he has this thing called Witness Wednesday where he just goes out and he's like, you know, has all his mic on. He's, so he's like, you know, evangelizing people. And uh, it's really cool to listen to because he's, he's talking to, like, different people, different faiths and everything. He's, he's out there just evangelizing. And at the G3 conference, he was there, and he had this, this little workshop on how to do open-air preaching. And in it, I, I attended and just listening. He said, like, you know, it seems like I am really good at this, that I just go out and just talk to people, engage with people about the gospel. But he admitted it's really scary. Like, he, he doesn't like the fact that he gets yelled at and, cur- and like cussed at every single Wednesday. But he does it because he knows that this is the command of the Lord. That if he is to be faithful, that he's to be found faithful, he, yeah, he will, he will evangelize every Wednesday. And every Wednesday, you'll see him. And if you listen to his podcast, he's like, okay, it's Witness Wednesday. I'm out here, whatever. And the audio, audio quality is obviously lower because he's not in the studio. But he's always out there. He's talking to different people, sharing the gospel with everyone, and Sometimes we think, oh, he's brave, but he has to trust the Lord every single time. And the same is with our evangelism. Yes, it's scary to share the gospel. It's considered foolishness to the world. But this is our, but we have to trust the Lord. It's not saying that we can't be afraid. Like even Jesus himself was afraid when he went to the cross, but he said, not my will, but your will, talking to the Father. He was faithful and the most faithful Christians are not Christians who can do things perfectly, but rather they submit themselves to the word of God. It is hard to live by faith at times, but it's still better to live by faith even if you're struggling than to not live by faith at all. Verse 28. When the men of the city arose in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was torn down, and the Asheroth 
which was beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar, which has been built. Then they, they said to one another, who did this thing? And when they searched about and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, did this thing. I'm just trying to imagine, like, this mob, they wake up, they see, like, oh, our altar is gone. Who did it? Like, and it's somehow, I don't know how they knew it was Gideon, but they just knew it was like, it's Gideon. Commentators said, like, it's probably because this altar was actually near his father's property. So they just assumed, okay, it's not going to be the dad, so it's probably the son. But I don't know, they, they, somehow they deduced correctly that it's Gideon. Verse 30, then the men of the city said to Joash, bring out your son that he, may, that he may die, for he has torn down the altar of Baal, and indeed he has cut down the Asherah which was beside it. And I just loved his dad's response, 31. But Joash said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal or will you deliver him? Whoever will plead for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is God, let him contend for himself because someone has torn down his altar. Now I'm trying to remember, I'm just trying to visualize this mob, like, hey, like, you know, they're going to front, this, like, the, the, the front door, like, hey, bring your son, I'm going to kill him. And then this dad's like, if, God, if Baal was real, you don't need him to defend himself. And, and then the people are like, oh, you're right, you're right. And then, and then look at what happens right after. They're 32, therefore, on that day, he named him Jerubbabel. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he had torn down his altar. So they gave him a nickname. It's like, oh, dude, that's, it's, it's. I think it was like the most gangster scene in this chapter. It's just kind of like, he, he, they're like, okay, this, he, like, you know how like sometimes nick, like, people's nicknames are like associated with what they do? Well, Jer- well Gideon is known as Jerubal because of what he did. They gave this guy a nickname of tearing down the altars. And Gideon did what God had told him to do, and the Lord has protected him. The Lord in his sovereign plan used his father to protect him, to spare him. Verse 33. Then all the Midianites the Malachites and the sons of the east assembled themselves and they crossed over and camped in the valley of Jezreel. So the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and he, and he blew a trumpet and the Abderites were called together to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh and they also were called together to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali and they came up to meet him. So the Midianites, instead of killing Gideon there decided to just assemble like everyone's like, okay, we're gonna just fight them. And and this and then and they got they were scared. Like like they, they assembled this entire army and then the Holy Spirit came upon Gideon and he's now called to go to go to war. And you'll notice that these people in verse 35 they're actually the people who did not fight uh, with Barak and Deborah in chapter four in the in the previous section in four, four and five. Um but they're here now to fight alongside Gideon. We need to obey God in every moment and trust God for his protection. We, we may lose this life because of our obedience, but our eternal security will always be protected. This is what Romans 8 talks about, right? At the end of Romans 8, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. No matter how bad things are in this life, God will have this eternal security, this eternal protection that goes is infinitely better than the protection that we have in this life. Sometimes the Lord will spare you through your faithfulness, but other times the Lord will just let you die because of your faith. And you should count that as a worthy honor to suffer for, for, for Jesus Christ. God will accomplish much if we are faithful to him, even if it's hard to do so. We trust and know that God will protect us. God's word promises us protection. Psalm 9.9, the Lord also will be a stronghold for, his, for the oppressed. 
a stronghold in times of trouble. Psalm 18.2, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. Psalm 59.9, because of his strength, I will watch for you, for God is my stronghold. Psalm 94.22, but the Lord has been my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. God's word will protect you. It will protect all of us in, in different situations of our lives. And it will cause you to cherish God's word whenever he delivers you, whenever he protects you in this life from, from, from temptation, from different trials, you will learn to love his word more. Not only can we uh, get reminded by our salvation, our mission, and protection from God's word that will make us cherish God's word more, but lastly, we can be reminded of our assurance that's in God's word that will make us cherish God's word more. Look at verse 36 to the end of the chapter. Then Gideon said to God, If you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken, behold, I will put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only and it is dry on the ground, then I will know that you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken. And it was so, when he arose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he drained the dew from the fleece a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to, said to God, Do not let your anger burn against me that I may speak once more. Please let me make a test once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry on the fleece and let there be dew on the ground. God did so that night, for it was dry only on the fleece and dew, uh, and dew was on all the ground. Gideon Ask God to show him the sign, the test, so he wants to know that God will deliver him. And you'll notice at the very end of verse 36 that as you have spoken, Gideon is scared, but he goes to God. He admits to God his own doubts and fears, and he does this little fleece test. And if you were to use the New Testament equivalent, it would be like when, when, the, when, you, when you hear that phrase, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. If you look at this, you may think to yourself, how foolish it is for anyone to test God. But isn't this what we do all the time in our subtleties, in our, in our minds, in our thoughts? We'll say, God, if you do this for me, then I will do this. God, if you do that for me, then I will do that. We make bargains in our heart, but really it's not really bargain. Those are, these are parts of our life where we're testing the Lord. How many times have you said that in your, in your last week or in the last month or the year the Bible is clear that we should not test the Lord. Deuteronomy 6, 16, um, as well as Luke 4, 12, and even Matthew 3. All of these passages actually all go back to Deuteronomy 6. If you remember in Deuteronomy, this was after the first generation of Israel died. And then there's the second generation. And God, uh, in the first generation, the reason why they all died out was not because of old age. It was because they kept testing God. They say, oh, we don't have bread, and God gives them bread, and they say, oh, well, uh, give us uh, meat, and then God gives them meat, and then they, and over and over again, they just kept complaining and complaining, and kept testing and testing God. They kept asking for more. This is why when, when Jesus was tempted in the, in the wilderness, and the serpent was tempting him, he said that you should not put the Lord to the test, because when you put God to the test, it shows your own unbelief. 
And Gideon here, I don't think he's testing God because he doesn't believe, it's not that he doesn't believe in the existence of God. He does believe that, God, that Yahweh exists. But what he doubts is his own ability. It's not that he didn't believe in God, but he struggled with his own faith. He struggled with his own weakness. He wants to believe and he asked God to give him grace to trust him more. And again, this is, there's a difference between testing God for sake of, because of your own weakness and testing God because you think God is weak. And this, this is like what John the Baptist was doing. When John the Baptist got scared, he asked, he asked his followers to go to Jesus, like, hey, are you really the Messiah? It's not that he, did, he doubted that Jesus was the Messiah, but he doubted his own ability to, 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 to hang on to Christ. And they, what, remember what God has done. He did, he did a miracle. He showed a miracle, so the followers went and they report this back to John. He wasn't testing God. And I don't think Gideon was here just testing his existence whether God is good or true, but rather he's, he's, he's weak and he's asking God to help him. This was different between Gideon's, the type, the, te- the type of test that Gideon does and other people who attempt to test God today. Gideon knew of his own weakness and always trusted God even though he was scared. When people test God today, they test him without, with already the presupposition that he is not able to deliver. It all depends on your starting points. Gideon's struggle and faith, again, is like the type of, that John the Baptist had. They both believed, but they struggled in their ability, not God himself. I've met people in my life that have said, would say stuff like this, like, if God will do this for me, then I will believe in him. And yet God has actually fulfills those things, and they still don't believe. I think I shared, did I ever share about the lightning guy? No? Okay, so, <laughs> the lightning guy. So, when I was in, one of my, co- when I, one of my college pastors, he, he shared like a similar story where people were testing God. He said like, he had a friend that said, if I was struck by lightning, then I would believe. And he was actually struck by lightning. Like he, he, like he the next time he saw him, he was, like, he was in a hospital and he was, he was still alive. He was like partially paralyzed. And then he asked like, why would God do this? If God was real, why would he let me get struck by lightning? <laughs> And you're laughing, and it seems foolish, but understand that in our own deceptiveness, in our own heart, we can do the same thing. We may not say something as grand as being struck by lightning, but we might doubt, like, oh, if God really wanted, really loved me, that he would provide a spouse. If God really loved me, that he would provide a job that I am satisfied with. And the little grumblings of your heart, these are moments where you're testing God. Don't test God. You can go to your God for your weaknesses and even, even admit to the Lord what you're struggling with, but don't test him. That's why some people fall away from faith. Some people say, well, God didn't answer my prayer. It's like he did. He said no to you. That's an answered prayer. You may not like it, but it's actually good for you. We have the Bible that gives us principles, commands, and assurances. And all of God's miracles that were written down is to keep us to know him. They're kept together so that we can know who he is. God's word itself is a miracle that keeps on assuring us over and over again of all of his good promises. And we are people that are constantly in doubt, and God reminds us in our walk to trust him. And God's word assures assures us of his goodness in our lives. I just finished this book by Sinclair Ferguson called In the Year of Our Lord. It's a really cool title. Basically, it's just 
AD. <laughs> um, but every, in every chapter, there's 20 chapters, and each chapter focuses on a century of church history. It's really short. It's like three or four pages. It kind of just talks about one figure or one major event in that century or what was going on. When you get to the 20th chapter, it talks about the 20th century. He makes this observation that this is the, the era where there's the most technology. People are aware of the gospel more. So then, and that's a plus, that the gospel is being spread all over the world. There's technology that allows gospel to, to, to go and missionaries to go wherever to go and share to, and reach un, you know, people who have never heard the gospel before. But at the same time, because of technology, there's also way more persecution. And I think about one of our missionaries that's in, that's in Asia. Like he, because of technology, the government knows where he's at. That's a downside. He can use it for gospel ministry, but it could also be a hindrance against them because people know where he's at. See, and Sinclair Ferguson said the 20th century, it's, it's actually, if you count it, it's, it's, the, it's the century where there's the most persecution, not just because of technology and people finding it, but also the weapons that are created. You think about all the, 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 the death toll for Christians is way more in this century than it was in the past. But yet he makes this profound and simple reminder for, to the reader no matter how bad the world has become, no matter how, how it seems like science and skepticism seem to be taking over the world, that we have absolute assurance that God will build his church. God told everyone back in the first century that he will build his church, and not even the gates of Hades will overcome it. The existence of the church should assure us of the promises of God's word. Every time you come on a Friday night, every time you go on a Sunday, every time you meet with other people in the church, it should remind you that this is a promise that's fulfilled years and years ago. That's why you should be thankful to, for the church, not just because of the people and the friendship you develop, but because every time you're in the gathering of other believers, it's God building the church. It's Christ keeping his word. Nothing can overcome this church. Not, I'm not talking about SFBC, I mean in general, like wherever, and then all the churches all over the world. Every time that a person comes to saving faith and gets added to the church, that's the Lord building up the church. And we should praise the Lord for it. We should praise the Lord that every single time that we meet is because God is protecting his church. And if he's going to protect, he's been protecting the church for the last 2,000 years, and he'll continue protecting the church until he returns. If you want to cherish God's word, remember all the assurances that God has made in Scripture, that God has said in Scripture. In temptation, God will deliver you. In persecution, God will give you endurance. Whether there are trials, it's, it's for your own good and your salvation, that you'll never lose your salvation. All of these absolute promises in Scripture are things that we need to cherish. And the more we dwell on these promises of Scripture, the more we'll love God's word. Don't test God by asking God to do something miraculous because you are experiencing it right now. Your salvation is a miracle. You having a new heart is a miracle. You being in the context of the church here today in this era is a miracle. But the chief of all miracles that we get to see every single day is the word of God. We get to read it. We get to meditate on it. We get to pray with it. It should be our intimate friend. God's strength is always made known and human weakness. And if you struggle in life, go to God. Trust in God's word. God's word will assure you that he is the one true God. So why should we cherish God's word? How can we cherish God's word more? 
Every time we read, every time we open God's word, every time we, are, we do our devotional times, it will remind us of our salvation. It will remind us of our mission. It reminds us of, of, of his protection and it also gives us assurance. All that you do in this life is based on God's word. It, everything hinges on it. There are, these four reminders will allow us to live faithfully. It will make us think more critically when we're reading God's word. It will make us want to spend time with him reading his word. It will make us more intentional every time we do our devotions. If you want to devote more time to the Bible and in all your studies, and whether it's Sunday school or your own devotional time, remember these four. Remember that the word of God reminds you of your salvation, your mission, your protection, and your assurance. Let us pray. Lord, we're thankful for your word and your constant provision and protection. Lord, we're glad that we're so thankful for your preservation of your word throughout this, the centuries. You could have left us without any direction. You could have left us not knowing who you are, but you're so gracious and kind in protecting your word so that we're able to read it. And Lord, we know that it's so easy for us to take your word for granted, um, especially in time of peace, in time where there isn't much persecution, time of this technological age, it's easy for us to just assume that, that this, this is an easy access. And it is, but Lord, give us a greater desire to appreciate your word more each day so that we can grow in Christ-likeness, so that we can fulfill the mission that you have set before us. Lord, we want to honor you with our lives. And may you guard our hearts from sin. May you protect our lives from things that will cause us to... to damage or hurt your reputation, Lord. Be with us this week as we uh, get to live out our lives and we do it all for your glory. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen.